everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Revival Church Podcast. Um, The gang is back together. It's T-Bane here, and I am joined with Joel Whitley, Justin Luttrell, and the illustrious Reverend Timothy Walkstetter. Wow. And we are having another talk today. Um, I don't really know what to call it when we... When we when we're all together, I've I've been thinking about it. It could be like the talk. I've got another podcast that I listen to. They'll call it like the conversation when they have like a, a roundtable discussion or whatever. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that or. As long as we're not the view. The view. <laughs> and with that, we're gonna make a disclaimer that this may be the most political podcast that we have on the Revival Church podcast. And even at that, we're gonna try to keep it pretty pretty low key. So nonpartisan political, let's put it that way. Exactly. So it was uh, it was Labor Day this weekend. Did y'all do anything fun? No. Well, my grandson's moved here back to Arkansas. That's fun. So that's awesome. Yeah. I Along think with my daughter. Joel did something pretty cool recently. What was that? What did I do? Well, I mean, your wife did. Not really what you did. What oh. did you do since the last well, time we like, were together? That was like three weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. but nobody's talked about it. Oh, yet. Okay. Yeah, on the podcast, I got you. Yeah, we have a little one. He's all right. What? 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 <laughs> what's the, what's the child's name again? Amos Boone. Amos, Amos Boone. What? He's a man's man already. You can little tell. Little wit. You better believe it. Little Moss. Uno Moss. Uno Moss. You better watch it. He's got some <laughs> paws on him. He will slap the spit right out of your mouth. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about you, Justin? Do you do anything other than watch gingerbread competitions? Um, you do know it's September, correct? It is It is September. So I, I'm just now learning what my weekends are like, even though it's Labor Day weekend. Uh, so we, my daughter and I, uh, prepared some meat. So as soon as we get done here, we are going to go smoke some things. I heard that. Uh, <laughs> like meat. Okay, uh, meat. thank you. We are smoking meat. We are smoking meat. We're so trying not to she, say she, anything she that would compromise your position. Them, and so we wrapped them last night. She even... I taught her how to tie some chicken up and everything, so we are we're good to go as soon as soon as we get home. I think you need to teach me how to tie chicken up. I don't know how to do that. To well, they're dead, so it's a lot easier. Okay, <laughs> that does that, that that does make it a little simpler. They, they don't they don't they don't peck like as hard when they're dead. Chicken on a leash. <laughs> chicken on a leash. That sounds like a nasty biscuit. Uh, <laughs> we used to eat those. We'd chicken eat on chicken, a leash. No, chicken in a biscuit. Oh. <laughs> we Ain't still do. It's called called, called Chick Fil A. Oh. Are you talking about the... I'm talking about the crackers. The cracker. Oh, I don't know that. That's probably where, where we got oh. the term from. All right. Oh. This is starting off terribly, so... <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, so how do you segue from chicken and a biscuit to 9-11? But uh, basically, this weekend, by the time this podcast comes out, um, it will be September 11th, which is, uh, you know, obviously a... a uh, it's Patriot something. Day. Yeah, Patriot Day. Yeah. I always forget that it's called that for some reason. Yeah. Um, but uh, I was pretty young when it happened, um, but I still remember it like it was yesterday, really. I remember being in uh, in middle school gym class, and uh, some girl said that the White House had been bombed or something like that, you know, and she didn't know what she was talking about. But uh, I remember once we got to some of our later classes, they were they were they wheeled in the TVs because that's what happened back then, you know, and uh, we were watching the footage and all that stuff. Um, you guys remember where you were? I, I do. do. I was living in San Diego, California at the time, and so the uh, the hour was earlier there, and so my family and I was an early Tuesday morning, and I was on my, my way to men's prayer 
with my family. And so I flipped on the radio, and I had heard at the time that a plane had hit the building. But the way they made it sound like it was just a regular plane that had hit uh, the tower. And while the guy is talking, he, he's like live, and he does the, the second plane going into the building. And it was, that, uh, it was that moment you knew that this was not an accident. You knew that this was purposeful and that these were terrorists and we were under attack. And it was just a number of different things. And that was, by the time I got to, you know, prayer and we prayed and all of that and found out about the White House and later about the, the field in Pennsylvania and all of that. So it was a long day, long day. How about you, Joel? You remember? Yeah, I was uh, I was in fifth grade, and I was on a field trip to a horse farm, and uh, we got out there, and we had been out. It took us like thirty minutes to get there from the school, and uh, we were all piled up in this van. It was a little Christian school, so we had a little church van we were riding around in, and um, it took us like thirty minutes to get there, and thirty minutes to get us all checked into the horse farm, and we were all there for about fifteen twenty minutes. And we had to turn around and go back to the school, and no one really told us why. And then when we got back to the school, everyone's parents was waiting, were waiting in the parking lot. And um, we all just went home, and still yet, I didn't know what had happened. Um, I just knew that something bad had happened. There was people crying in the parking lot, and um, I think a lot of the, the people who were crying were crying out of fear I, more than anything else. They were just, everybody was scared. And um, everybody was picking up their kids and, and going home. And I didn't really know what happened until later on that evening. I had gotten to my grandparents' house, and they had the news on. And that's when I had, I mean, I had heard it on the radio and stuff. But <clears throat> I was 10 years old. I was 9 years old, technically. Uh, my birthday was in a week. And uh, I was 9 years old. I didn't know what the World Trade Centers were. I didn't know any of that stuff. And heard it on the radio. It didn't mean anything to me. And then I saw the footage on, on TV later on that afternoon. And, um, yeah, it was pretty... Pretty shocking, but really, when it hit me the most was about two to three years later, when I was a little bit older, and I rewatched some of the footage. Yeah, yeah. And I was a little bit older, and I actually kind of understood it. And um, yeah, pretty yeah. rough stuff. Yeah, it's it's amazing how things will hit you. Um, I took my family a few months after that, and we went to Legoland, and of course, there at Legoland, they had recreations of the great cities of the world. And one of them was um, New York. And so they had taken out the, the towers there, and they had put something else in instead. And I stood there in Legoland, and I started weeping, just kind of recreating the, the events in my mind. It was cathartic in its own way. Very strange event. What about you, Justin? Well, I was actually in eighth grade American history class. Um, and... Uh, it's just, it's just very, I guess, serendipitous like that. But uh, the teacher wheeled in this old wooden radio, if you ever seen the old wooden radios. That's what we, we didn't have TVs at my school like Timmy did at that time. So they wheeled, they wheeled in a, a radio, this wooden radio, and he just, he didn't say a word. He was a probably second year teacher. Uh, he's he's a coach now uh, here in town. So uh, he, uh, he wheeled in the radio, the wooden radio, and uh, just turned it on. And he said, if anybody believes in prayer, now's a good time to do that. And just went and sat at his desk and put his head down. And we all just listened and nobody talked. 
and we were eighth grade, so we we could understand with what they were saying. We maybe didn't know the magnitude of it, but we knew something terrible was going on in our country that we had never known before. Uh, and we were only in September, so we hadn't even got to the stuff where we talked about wars and things in American history. So really, this was our first encounter with, you know, something bad happening on American soil um, where some outside force uh, was at it. Uh, and so I just remember that it was just very somber. Uh, uh, some kids got checked out that day. Um, after school, I remember going to Walmart, and uh, that was when the electronic station there at Walmart just consisted of a bunch of TVs, and every TV was turned on to the news station. And I remember just grown adults standing there, not shopping, just standing there and watching the TVs. And some were weeping and some were just had this blank look in their face. And again, I'm only in the eighth grade, but you could understand like something is there's a shifting going on. And I remember a few days later, and this is before I was even political, but I remember I remember a speech being made by the president and just the unity that I saw. Yeah. You know, later I would study about nationalism and you would learn about nationalism in World War One or World War Two. But uh, I, we got to at least for a few weeks, I think America got to experience a nationalism that we had not experienced before. Um, and I think actually our church had one of our first services. We had a little vigil right outside in the parking lot as this, you know, the church was almost finished being built or right about there. But I just, I remember, and we were in church that next Sunday morning. Well, uh, I, I so. was actually, that was something I was going to mention. Our last service on Clinic Street was September 9th, 2001. And our first service in the new building, which is now Hanners Hall, was the Sunday after September 11th. So. Well, and what you were talking about is really what I remember about it. It's like Joel said, I mean, I was pretty young. So, I mean, I I mean, I knew what happened, but I, you don't really understand the ramifications of something like that at nine or ten or however old I was. Um, but what I do remember is the overwhelming um, patriotism that was there that wasn't there before. And it was kind of like a switch flipped. Um from uh, everybody, yeah. No matter, no matter where you were, yeah, and there, on the aisle, there like. was there was really a uh, kind of a hand holding. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like the it went across the aisle, that kind of thing. So absolutely, that's that's what I remember the most about it. And uh, it's interesting because now we are in 2020. We're finally getting to the point to where. Um, we're so far from each other. Yeah, yeah. we're well, 19 years removed from that point, and right. So kids that have been born recently, you know, even in the last five or six years, they don't remember. College freshmen were were just being born or at right. that point in time. So you know, you got to think of anybody in high school and younger. They they weren't even alive back then. Mm-hmm. People that are in college for the most part uh, have no real memory of it um, because they were too young. So I'm in my seventh year as an administrator. So I guess eight years ago was my last time teaching a class. Uh, and we were teaching 9-11. And I'm, I don't think a single student in the class, they either had not been born or they were babies and had no idea. And so this, it, they've always heard of 9-11. Uh, and, of course, we would show them the appropriate videos and things that we could at that time. But... Uh, no one in there understood really 
the the ramifications have of what had happened because they had not experienced that, uh, and so it it uh, it's interesting how time has a way of of erasing some of that. Yeah. It's almost like it's treated the same way our generation treats Pearl Harbor. Yeah, yes. we like we had a. Exactly. Uh, I had it already set up uh, for the school that year where we had uh, survivors of Pearl Harbor were going to come and speak to the kids wow. on um, Veterans Day. And so we had uh, people from Pearl Harbor, and I, I realized as they talked about it that day that I had this this void that I didn't really understand what they had went through and that later on we would stand before people and talk and they would have no idea what we went through. Yeah. And, of course, you know, I... I just survived it in the sense I was living in California, not New York City, or um, I used to live uh, near D.C., and so I, I knew people that worked in the Pentagon and all that sort of stuff. So um, it's, it's interesting because now we have, we have morphed into Patriot Day. We don't call it 9-11 so much. The new generation calls it Patriot Day. That's the official holiday, and, and yet the patriotism... Um, is not there that it was on that day or the time after the care for one another, the care, love of country, or <clears throat> at times has even been taken like with the Patriot Act and and uh, politicized mm-hmm. to a degree and and misused or or used in in maybe ways that people could not foresee at the time. So again, not to be overly political, but just to acknowledge that the new generation rising up maybe not really understand what the day is really supposed to be about. So maybe that's kind of what the podcast here can at least address for our ideas of what what does it mean to be a patriot, particularly as a believer, as a Christian, um, what does it mean to be a patriot? Right. And uh, that's kind of what we've come here to talk about today is um, – Basically, what does it mean to be a Christian, to be a Christian and a patriot at the same time? So, or are you even able to do that? You know, because I I hear even in Christian circles, a lot of times you, I I don't know how to say it, but they, it's almost, it's almost a, it's, it's, it's almost a negative thing to be too um, pro-country. I understand. You know what I'm saying? Well, there's there's always the there's always that fine edge between patriotism and nationalism, and you know sometimes we have we have become so patriotic, if you would, that we have fallen off. People on the right, like me, that have fallen off into nationalism, right? With this belief of uh, this is my country, right or wrong, I will support everything it does and all of that type of thing, and every action is the right action, and we are right simply because we are Americans. And I think then the kickback of that, you know, the counterbalance is is to take and to move the other side, um, and either extreme can be dangerous because, again, um, you know, it, it, people have misused politics for every purpose under the sun, and people can can hijack no pun intended but you can hijack nationalism um for negative purposes and so i think patriotism brings us back to a a love of country but a love of country in the same way we love family mm-hmm. that we we 
have the ability of seeing, like, like I'm the head of a household, of seeing I love my family, but that doesn't mean my family's right all the time. It doesn't mean I'm right all the time. And that part of, part of my love should be an acknowledgement that things need to change, that um, there are times that we are incorrect or headed the wrong direction and that we need to change those directions. Right. And I think if you look at the history of America and you look at the great patriots of old, that's exactly where they positioned themselves because they would see a country where things weren't exactly where they needed to be. And based on their beliefs and their principles and even their posterity or their family and the future of their family, they would act in certain ways to hopefully one day make that a better place. And we, we saw that during colonialism. We saw that uh, in the, the women's suffrage movement. We saw that even in the civil rights movement where people had to say, yes, we, we are American, but it doesn't mean that everything is fine. And as a patriot, I want to make this place better. Yeah, it's, it's Lincoln's new birth of freedom. Yes. It's the idea that here we are, um, in a sense, because we're trying to preserve and this is where it becomes the, the great irony is we're moving forward, but the way we're moving forward is we're trying to preserve the rights that God has given us, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. We're trying to preserve those rights for everyone yeah. and uh, that type of uh, thing. When I think that's that's kind of the, that's part of the question that, that we need to answer today, or at least somewhat answer, is, you know, you'll hear from both sides of the aisle. Everybody, everybody has an opinion about what the founding fathers were and what their worldview was and what they what they actually intended with the things that they put in place. Um, was it from a Christian perspective or was it deist or was it just, or was that just what they were doing because that was what was popular at the time? Um and that's some of the things that I think we'll unpack over the course of this show today. I think it'd be a good idea to go ahead and take a break right now. Um, we'll probably take a break every so often just to just to kind of break up the uh, the monotony here, and then we will be back in just a moment. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Tim Walkstetter, and uh, we were talking together about uh, the founders and their point of view, and from the way that I've studied history as well as studied scripture and that type of stuff, the way that I see the founders is people who have basically embraced, whether they were Christians or not, they pretty much embraced the Judeo-Christian version of mankind, uh, man's fallen nature, uh, the importance of labor and work, and basically tried to form a government that would, in a sense... Uh, capitalize on the strengths and weaknesses that we would have. So that the reason they, they chose the, the republic, the idea of a federal republic, of pretty much dividing uh, powers up is so that not one group would become overly powerful. So that everything we do pretty much has some sort of component of compromise in it. That was kind of their idea. So that not one person or group, or party, or um, body would become overly powerful. And uh, like I said, it, uh, you would have uh, the, the nation versus the state, the state versus the county, the county versus the city, 
you would also have the three branches of government and all of that kind of thing. And that um, pretty much the people would then act as owners that would hire people um, then that would then carry out responsibilities. And so it's kind of like having a business. If you simply say, I love my business so much that my business never has made a mistake, that's a, that's a silly attitude to have right. as a business owner. Yeah. Uh, it's also, the other extreme would be everything we serve is, is terrible. I hate this place. I, you're going to go down too. You have to have a, a proper balance where you say, I love, I love this enough to make the proper changes that need to be made to change things off the menu, to fire people, to hire the best people, and all that kind of stuff. That's the way I, that's the way I see it. Justin, you got any ideas about that? Yeah, well, just kind of what you're talking about, the whole idea of <clears throat> that, uh, n- that no one person is, is more important than the other. Just that central idea um, actually just, just – uh, it, it takes you all the way back to one, one of the first pieces of document that, that, I, that, I can, that I can see is the Magna Carta. And people are like, the Magna Carta, that's, that's a monarchy. But really the Magna Carta was, was in part written by uh, the arch – uh, Bishop of Canterbury, if you ever heard of of, of that before, uh, and it was a guy named Stephen Langton, and uh, he actually had this uh, this um, this idea where he would use the Bible uh, to govern how he thought uh, the state should govern, and, and they called this the political thought is is what they viewed it as. But in his political thought, his central idea was that no single person was more important than the other, which is why the, the Magna Carta was used to restrain the king. Well, and, and again, so. the king is King John, mm-hmm. and John had actually tried to give away the country. If you, if you study it out, he had actually tried to give away the country to the Catholic Church to find some sort of ally. So he, was, he had basically painted himself in a corner so much that he was trying to find an ally. He turned to the church and basically said, hey, I will, since since I'm in charge of the entire country, I will be subservient to you. Ergo, the entire country will be yours. And they're like, you can't give away our country. You may be the boss, but you can't give away a country. And that's when the, the nobles and people like that kind of stood up on their hind legs and said, no, you're not doing that. So hundreds of years later, we, we then have the greats like Voltaire and Descartes, uh, and even into John Locke, which goes back to even what Brother Wuxtetter was talking about when he said, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. John Locke also, his central idea, he was actually raised a Puritan, and so his central idea that, that he kept with through his life, even looking at when he would do the natural law and the natural rights, was this central idea that there are these rights that every person is born with. And he called them life, liberty, and property is what he called them. And Thomas Jefferson kind of switched it up. But you even find life, liberty, and property in the Fifth Amendment. Uh, And so these ideas that everyone should be able to have life, they should be able to have liberty, that no one person should be able to take those things away, they were the very foundation of what we would call westernized democracy. But they all shared their principles in the Bible and in the Christian Well, again, as, as they would say, these are inalienable rights yes. in part because they are God-given rights, right. which is why the 
Declaration speaks so much about the creator and about God. It's the idea that the rights are not given to us by the government. The rights are protected by the government. That's right. the argument Jefferson makes in the Declaration, that when, when the government ceases to protect those rights, we, we have an obligation, is what he says, to change the form of government. I think, I think that hits the nail on the head, and that's one of our main issues right now is that we look to the government to give us rights as opposed to being endowed by the creator with our rights. Like, rights are something that come from the inside. They, don't, they are not pressed upon us from the outside, you know? So it's not really, rights are not something that can be governed. They are only something that can be protected. Correct. I mean, you know. And, and the only way that you properly can, can do that, protect them, to a certain extent, is you limit them by everyone having the opportunity to, to participate. And the idea that, that Madison had is if you put enough people, it's like we're all playing tug of war. If you only have two sides, there's going to be clear winners and clear losers. But if you have a multitude of ropes, if we can think about it more like when you used to play parachute as a kid, when if everybody's pulling on this thing, uh, the four corners of a blanket or even have something circular like a parachute and everybody's pulling on their part of it, right. it would create almost like a trampoline of, of a stable society and culture if everyone participates. The problem that we have is there have been people, and again, I believe these are God-given rights, and that, that Democratic Republic is there to help protect those rights. But what we can see is we have surrendered those rights many times. Like, you know, sometimes we become critical of the president, whatever the president is, for being too powerful, but the president cannot be too powerful of themselves. Mm -hmm. They have to have someone who has surrendered those rights so that basically we have not had a war uh, since Korea. Everything else has been some type of quote-unquote police action. The wars, you, you could actually make the argument that, that Vietnam was not technically a war because we never declared war on Vietnam because the Congress refused to do that. They wanted to give the president uh, the powers to do such a thing. And then, of course, we become, we become critical of the presidents, whether they be Johnson or they become Bush or they become Obama or they become Trump. We become critical of them being too powerful of exercising that power incorrectly, but it's it was Congress that yielded that power up, and in the same way, the citizenry, at times, just says, "Well, I don't I don't really know anything about it, so I'm just going to yield up my power to somebody else to do it." Um, but the the fact of the matter is, when we do that, when we cease to participate in this process, that's when. The rights, we, we, we run a danger of surrendering those rights, and it's uh, at our peril. Because not only do we surrender rights, we, we surrender responsibilities. Right. And James Madison, actually, uh, great quote where, where he talked about one of the things you have to do if you want to keep this democratic republic is that you have to educate yourself. But he gave a warning in that in which he said, if Congress can employ enough money, he said, can employ money indefinitely for the general welfare, and they become the sole and supreme judges of that welfare, then they can take any of these ideas or religion into their own hands 
And before you know it, now education is in their hands. And when they establish this, it says, were the power of Congress to establish in the latitude contended for, it would actually subvert the very foundations and transmute the very nature of this idea of limited government that was established by the people. And again, it, it education for the masses makes sense if what we're doing is we're educating the owners of the country. If we're educating the people who are the decision makers, then that is something we should be all invested in so that people should have the right to educate themselves. But if when they get to that age where they become, uh, have the opportunity to participate and then they uh, basically just delegate that authority over to someone else and say, well, I'm not really invested, I'm not really interested and I don't know what to do and instead of doing the homework and, and all, really when they graduate from high school, that's when the homework really should begin. When they turn 18 and now they become a citizen so that they should know, okay, well, this is what this politician stands for, and this is what this this is what this is what we're dealing with right now, and this is what uh, hate crimes are like. You know, as 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 we sit here in Arkansas, we're starting to debate hate speech. Okay, that's one of the things. Well, you know, to people who, um, you know, nobody nobody likes the idea of hate speech, but if we take that and we just sort of, okay, we'll let we'll let. The government determined what hate speech is, and we will uh, we'll all be against that uh, in that sort of regards. Then those type of, as we yield up that authority, again, nobody is in favor of hate speech. Um, but as we penalize speech, right, we can find ourselves one day on the short end of the stick and then say, well, what happened is, well, what happened is we allowed that to happen because we have not been invested in the, in the, uh, society and culture. You know, the Bible says, study to show thyself approved. And the same thing works when you're talking about uh, th- this idea of, of the patriot. Samuel Adams said that this education, like this learning just had you had described educating yourself. He said, this is going to be your security for the future. This is how you secure your free country. You educate yourself. And if you're not willing to do that, then you do surrender yourself to the government to do whatever they choose and And, please. And so we find ourselves in a position where we have greater rights than the the apostles did. Let's take the first century church and Paul writes to the Romans, let every soul be subject to the higher powers. There are no powers but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And uh, he goes into talking about those powers and, and the responsibilities that Christians have. But of course, Paul never had the opportunity of choosing who the Caesar would be. The Caesar was whoever in that monarchy, whoever they chose to be, or the oligarchy, however you want to describe Rome at that period of time, the empire. He never really had a say as a citizen. On the flip side, we as citizens have says. And so we have this opportunity to participate. Uh, We have the opportunity to vote. We have the opportunity to educate ourselves. We have the opportunity of a redress of grievances as they talk about it. And you never hear people, you know, and that's, I can inform um, the person that works for us on the position that I have. And, and, and sometimes if, if we fail to participate in that aspect of things, 
and then they don't do what we'd like them to do, how can we really be critical of them? How, how can I be critical of Tom Cotton if he doesn't vote the way I would like him to if I never told him how I would like him to vote? Right. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's the idea, really, when you're talking about patriotism, and we talked about this at the beginning, you know, patriotism doesn't mean that uh, you're going to stand with everything that your country does. Sometimes patriotism means, hey, this isn't right. So the people, the educated people that have educated themselves, it's not just an opportunity anymore. It becomes a responsibility. Absolutely. And a responsibility to change that. Uh, and when, when I think of that, I think of the great Martin Luther King Jr., uh, he, he created this idea that we call today this civil disobedience, which actually came from Thoreau. Uh, but when you're looking at MLK, one of, my favorite, one of my favorite letters just ever written by anybody is from him, and it's called Letters from a Birmingham Jail. That he and wrote to us. He wrote to the clergy. He wrote to the clergy, and, and he actually used the Bible, and he says, of course, there's nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. He said, it was seen sublimely in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These were these are characters from the Bible who it was they they took it as their responsibility uh, instead of obeying Nebuchadnezzar because their moral law was higher than that their their religion their beliefs the principles upon which they standed demanded that of them he said it was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face the hungry lions and the excruciating pain of chopping blocks before they submitted to certain unjust laws of the Roman Empire. And this is where he based that. This is their responsibility. This is the, the thing that drives them inside these principles, um, these, these ideas that God has inputted into everybody. And at some point, it does become our responsibility. And if our government has unjust laws, then it is our responsibility. Yes, be submitted to those rulers, but it never says obedience. And, and, and the obedience is the matter of the action, and so well, you may choose. Yeah, the, the, the idea was they made it very clear, the, the apostles made it very clear that we ought to obey God rather than man. Right. So that we, we do have that hierarchy. But I think we need to take a step back first and say, like I said, be, we, we have the opportunity um, before we just grab the sign. Again, for, for the civil rights movements, you could say they did not have the opportunity at the ballot box. So what does that mean? That means that I have to, in a sense, speak for people that may not have that opportunity. Yes, absolutely. I need to speak for those people at the ballot box. Or I need to speak for those people who are find themselves in a minority position, whether it's whether it's technically a minority by numbers or an economic minority, that I find myself talking to someone and saying, "Hey, have you thought about this person?" In the same way that I would want someone in a foreign country, let's say, where they would find themselves as a Christian minority, and I would say, "Hey, please protect those people, even though they are a." A minority again. We can't just go with a with a strict democracy because strict democracy becomes, as Adams would say, John Adams would become mobocracy. Mm -hmm. The idea that simply the mob rules, and and that's part of the problem I think that we have with some of the movements that we see today is that there is unfettered, there is there is no limitation, and therefore the change that takes place. is is so fluid that there is no, nothing consistent that continues on with it, whereas we are bound by a constitution, and that constitution 
whether we like it or not, has these limitations on it and that it has been strong enough that we have the oldest continuous uh, democracy, democratic republic in the world, in the history of the world. We've been able to do this because of that constitution that when we find something that's unjust, we have the opportunity to go to the redress of grievances. We have the opportunity to to do that. And then when we we can't, we can't find that, then we hit the streets. Then we we exercise those type of things. And, and, and I absolutely agree with that. Well, and I think that it's, and I think we, we've talked, or maybe I've talked about it a little bit in the podcast in the past, but I think a lot of the issue that we have, because one of the main things that, that I hear is that, you know, particularly the left just wants to tear everything down. They want to take all of the way that we do things, tear it down to the studs and then start over, basically. But to me, it's, it's really easy to say that we need to tear down 200 years of history and working on the way law works and different things like that because of the way that we are so connected now. So when your your vision of the way the world works is a microcosm of 50 years, you know, and you, you just, you see um, up to what your parents have told you, you know. So your vision of the way things work is so, is so twisted because you don't look any further back than that. Does that make sense? It does. I think, I think many times we find ourselves, um, we normally notice inequities, what we consider unfairness, when we are the recipient of the short end of the stick. Sure. And we never really consider the idea that at times, we want everything reset to the point where we no longer hold, hold the short end. But we never want to reset all the way back to the beginning. We don't want to go all the way back to Adam and Eve or Noah and the ark. We want to go back to a point where we held the long end yes. of the stick. That's yep. what we want. That's right. So the people want, okay, well, I want my student debt, um, I want my student debt to be paid off. We don't want everyone who's ever taken out student loans to be repaid. We simply want to just go to zero. So in other words, if if Justin in, in the pursuit of his doctrine has borrowed a hundred thousand dollars and he's paid it all off. We don't want to. I probably more than that. Uh, we 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 don't want to. Uh, we don't want to send him a check for a hundred thousand dollars. But you could if you wanted. To. <laughs> we want. We want. Simply, I will pay ties on it. <laughs> yeah, I promise. Well, definitely, we need to get that done. Um, we we want to go back to. We want to go back to like where we where we feel like well we're, now we hold the, the long end and like I said, many times that's really a small window yes. that we're really looking at. We're, yes. we're looking at the very small window of our world, our community, our neighborhood, instead of looking at ourselves. Um, I was in Kenya, and I watched people break rocks to make a road, and they were paying a, a dollar a day. Okay, we don't want to compare ourselves to that guy. No. We want to compare ourselves with the guy who's who's making mochas down at the coffee shop, and he's only making $13 an hour plus tips instead of $15, which is the quote-unquote living wage. Um, you know, that's what, we, we, you know what I'm saying? We, we, and, and we find ourselves in this situation where, like I said, in the midst of these inequities and things like that, and again, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the old guy in the group here. So 
you know, at, at times my way is a little bit more, I guess, naturally conservative, which is to, hey, everybody just calm down. Everybody just chill out. Everybody just participate. Uh, but show me letters that you've written to your congressman or phone calls that you've made or faxes that you've done. That's how old I am, faxes. Or emails that you've made uh, to uh, to people in which you've actually told them the way they need to. Or show me the candidates that, that, that really that you like because of positions that they have. And, and, and I know some young people who are very much engaged and who are very intelligent and have some very good points. And that we need to sit down and figure out hammering things out. But again, part of that becomes that dirty word of politics, which is compromise of compromise. Yes. When I think that's, that's the real issue, isn't it? I mean, we, we live in a society that, that is so quick and easy to express themselves on 50 different platforms, including one like this. Um, but we're always more willing to give criticism than we are to make any kind of and uh you know give give a way to to fix the problem that you're criticizing you know so for the most part we're we're addicted to outrage you know and we're we're always outraged about something and everybody's in a contest for who's the most outraged but nobody really has any answers to any of the questions it's and uh, i think uh i think it's time to go ahead and take another break and then we'll unpack that in just another couple minutes here. And we're back. And but before we took the break, uh, Brother Walkstetter was talking about this idea of compromise uh, within within the government and and also within the idea of patriotism, uh, because compromise is is going to be one of the things that's going to move you along a lot. You've got to be willing to come to the aisle. And one of the things that I can share, just even within my own work uh, is uh, this idea of if we can sit down at, at the table and just talk, just talk things out, uh, let everybody be heard. Uh, most of the time we can, we can at least leave, even if we don't get the answers that we want or things aren't done the way we want, at least we know we've been heard. These people are listening to us and, and we all still want the same thing. So we've got to understand that a lot of times these people in government, even though we may view them as evil, a lot of them really do have a vision for the country. And they want to see that vision of the country. That's what they want to see. That's why we elect officials, because they have this vision. And, and we, we are saying, hey, we agree, we align with this vision that they have for the country. So this is what they want. But we have to be able to come, come to the middle. And if you've noticed anything in the last couple of years, we are so far a lot of time. I'm not saying your principles are in the middle. That's not what I'm saying at all. Yes. But you have to be willing to to come to that middle of the aisle in order to have those conversations. Uh, and part of part of that means you again, you have the responsibility to educate yourselves. We were talking during the break um, about this idea of political literacy. You have to understand how this system works, whether you like this system, whether you think it's antiquated, whether you love the system, you still have to understand how it works. And too often, especially people of my generation, we're so quick to just throw things out into the wind or throw things on social media 
with criticisms and sometimes even blatant, even to the point of threats and things of that nature. And we've never actually studied how things work yeah. in order to make the change that really needs to be. Because we can shout in the wind all we want. And like Brother Walksitter said earlier, yeah, there may be a few changes at, at the first. But too often we're giving that power to the government to do yes. that. When and, it, then, and then we're flustered because it's not going the way we would like it to exactly. go. When, again, you know, whenever we use models for, like, actually getting people into Congress and things like that, and my relationship with them, there's what we call the trustee, and then there's what's called the delegate. And trustee basically means that when I vote for a person, I'm entrusting them to make decisions because I'm not there, I don't know, so I'm choosing a man because of his character basically. And if he does something that I don't necessarily understand, I will trust him that that will be the best thing to do. On the flip side, you have what's called the delegate, which means that I, that person will represent me. And so therefore they should do what the majority of the people in a particular place will do. And, and you'll see with that, if most people, most politicians are a blend of the two. They do sometimes things that uh, are high in the polls, and then they do some things because they believe it personally. This is this is where I stand on the issue, and and you kind of have to have that because you know there are there are positions that are taken at times where I don't know what's going on in Washington. I don't know how things are done, what's being done. That I lack the information of necessity. Uh, that's why we've even given you know like at times. Like we were talking about 9-11. When, when, when they came along and they grounded every plane, um, I have a relative that was an air traffic controller, and he was telling planes to land. And there were, there were pilots that were like, no, we're supposed to be going to this place. And he said, you bring the planes down now. Okay? That's, that, the, that's an extreme situation. But it is a place where, you know, something had to be done right then. So... I think the one point that you made that was really good, too, I think it was maybe made during the break, was the idea of actually having an opportunity to be heard. Mm-hmm. That, that part of the reason sometimes people take to the streets or they take to, um, to, they take to social media is because they want somebody to hear them, but they lack that ability of, of saying, this is who I need to go to. And... This, this is how I'm supposed to do things. Um, you know, the, the president hasn't fixed my pothole outside my house. And it's like the president is never going to fix the pothole outside your house. <laughs> That's never going to happen. Um, we we kind of have to re-educate ourselves or continue to educate ourselves in certain things. And then look at things, I think, from the true biblical perspective, which is that governments are there to protect the God-given right. And if they stand between me and my God-given right, then it's time to listen to God more right. than listen to man. That, that when I go to a ballot box, I should listen to Proverbs. The, in the book of Proverbs chapter 8, um, the wise man there personifies wisdom as a woman. And he talks about wisdom having all of these characteristics. And in that, there's this monologue that wisdom has. And he says... Wisdom says that the fear of the Lord is uh, to hate evil, pride, arrogancy, and every li- uh, evil way in the forward mouth do I hate. Counsel is mind, 
sound wisdom. I am understanding. I have strength by me. Kings reign and princes decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, even all the judges of the earth. So we can take that and say Solomon ruled by wisdom. We can take that and say that that the people of, of the Christian day should rule by wisdom. But then when we realize we are the ones, right, with the God-given right of, of the ownership of this country and that if change is going to happen, it, it should start with me, that I need wisdom sometimes, not just knowledge, not just I need wisdom. And the, and the wisdom that can only come is from above, right, which is what James talked about. When he talks about the double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways, he's actually using that as he talks about wisdom. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who giveth to all men, uh, liberally and abradeth not. Um, this idea that I need to, to seek wisdom from above. And, and like I said, I'm, I'm just goofy when it comes to this kind of thing. But I even think that when I go to a ballot box, I shouldn't just look at an R or a D or an I or a U or whatever. I've got, I need to say, okay, God, help me with this. Mm-hmm. Help me make this decision. And then when, when legislation comes in, help me to figure out the best way of approaching this person because I don't agree with this. Or, like we have found out recently, we, we could see a scenario where churches are closed for whatever reason. Uh, it's been COVID, but we've kind of set an example now that we could just say, well, we have decided it's in the best interest of everybody that your church be closed for whatever reason, okay? And if you tie into that um, other types of legislation, uh, like having to do with uh, hate speech or whatever, you could just say, hey, your pastor was endangering the welfare of people by preaching against some form of sin that that a, a portion of your population engages in. And yeah. so, therefore, he is a dangerous person, and you don't need to be there. And so we closed your church to protect you all, see? And and then you have to, you've got to go back to, like, with acts of, like, hey, wait a second. We're submitted to you, but we're not going to obey you. Yeah. If you take us and you persecute us, Hey, we've, we've got a long history of that thing going on, right? And even to the point, like I, I use the example of the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 23, where he finds himself before the high priest and, and he, he, he answers a question that they ask him. And when he, when they, when he doesn't, they don't like his response. They smack him. The high priest says, smack that man on the mouth. And when that happens... It's like Paul just, he just answers back because he's upset. He said, well, God's going to smite you, whited wall, because you're, you're, you know, you're, you're picking and choosing uh, what part of the law you want to follow. You, right. you say I should be cons- smitten according to the law, but you just broke the law by doing that. And they said, are you going to talk that way to the high priest? He goes, oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't realize it was the high priest. <laughs> and he apologizes, even though he's in the right he apologizes and he is submitted. He says, well, the Bible says, and I love this verse. He said, the Bible says, thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, when is the last time you heard somebody say that, like about the president? Wow. Um, you know, hey. Any of them. Yeah, whether it be yeah. Obama or um, Trump, that you, that you stop and say, wait, wait a second. We shouldn't, we shouldn't cross the line by, we will be, 
at times we'll be disobedient. No, we're not going to do that. You tell us not to sing, hey, sorry, I'm going to sing. I'm, I'm going to sing upon my bed if need be, but I'm going to sing somewhere. Um, but you can see here the, the idea of at times, like you say, the, the civil disobedience, uh, to do it civilly. Well, and it was the same thing with Jesus, right? I mean, they're, they're coming to him with this problem. They're going to try to hold him up, and then he's like, pull that coin out of your pocket. And they pull it out. He's like, whose picture's on the coin? They say Caesar. He's like, render under Caesar. What is Caesar's? It's, you know, it's, he understood that there's a system in place, you know, for a reason. And that's, and even though it wasn't beneficial to his people um, for Caesar to be in power, especially after his death, it got even worse, you know, like it's, it's still, it's still a biblical concept to be in submission to your leadership, no matter what. It, so, but but you also Maybe have not, no matter with what, that analogy because the coin, which is metal, is going to fall apart. I've got a number of Roman coins hanging on my wall. I've got them in a little display case. Um, oh my! You know, oh my! Full of wealth, displayed <laughs> <laughs> lavishly, lavishly. But uh, you can see that basically they're they're falling apart, and. You know, the sad thing is an acknowledgement of any form of government in, a, in any nation is that it will not last forever. I love that. And so in the in the same type of way, the one thing that will last forever is the image of God that is on every person. So more importantly than the image that's on the coin, that the coin is going to rust or fall apart or decay or be smashed on the railroad tracks or be taken and put in those machines like the kids do, right, where they... They stretch the penny, which I think at the zoo. used to be illegal, I think, <laughs> as a kid, you know, even though people now made, made a mint out of it. <laughs> um, the idea that, more importantly, is the image of God that I see in people that are like me and the image of God I see in people that are not like me. They don't look like me and they don't sound like me and they don't talk like me. And I need to, at times, reach out and, and feel them and speak for them because I have the privilege, I have the right. People may, in my little world, in my little podcast, or on my little pulpit, or my little meeting with a, a senator, I may have that just a few moments where I get to stand up and say, but I just can't speak for what I want. Right. I have to speak for what's right. right. And that might mean, hey, remember the soldier over there who's facing persecution because he's not allowed to pray the way he wants to. And acknowledge that when I make that statement, I don't, I don't want just people to pray the way I want them to pray, right? And which is sometimes why I'm good with some boundaries. You know, I, I, I am good with some, some things that people say, well, I don't want people doing it because I don't want my, I don't want my kid learning something weird or wonky or, or uh, sacrilegious. So right. maybe at times I don't want them to, to be overly concerned with the religious because I don't want them to learn the sacrilegious. But don't don't have an inequity in some type of governmental thing. But and that actually takes us back to letters from a Birmingham jail, as Martin Luther King Jr. is writing to the clergy. One of the things that he actually says in the letter, he admonishes 
the white clergy who are not speaking up, those who are silent in, 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 in this letter, because he's seen those that are loud on both sides. But he said, you that are being silent on this issue, that aren't speaking up for these injustices that you see, that's the real tragedy in this right now. And so I think as Christians, it is our responsibility when we see that, even if it's not us, and it doesn't have to be as serious as, as the matter that MLK was talking about. It could be the soldier back home. It could be the single mothers that are living in your community that you're trying to speak up for. Uh, but when you see these things, you should be speaking up. And the, the great... Uh, um, uh, the, the nun, the wonderful nun. person, Mother Teresa, the great Mother Teresa. I, I can't believe I forgot her name. No. She sure. said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your family. This also has to start with your family unit, too. Absolutely. Because if you're going to do this in public, you have to be able to teach these things to your children, that it is their responsibility when they see this also to speak up. But also, you got to hold to your principles as well. And it's okay if you're a little different than everybody else. Right. You still have these principles. And you don't have to agree with the person across the aisle, but if you see an injustice going on, you speak up for that. And that's that's a whole other podcast in itself. But really, the uh, we have to acknowledge that a lot of these, th- and it's kind of what we've been saying this whole time. But a lot of these problems that we have with the way that government works is really the way that we handle the family unit. Is our absolutely? That, you know what I'm saying? Primarily is the the issue the issue is that we don't that and and we've made the we've made the problem even more complex as we have yielded up more and more responsibilities yes right? and it makes you feel better to say that it's the government's fault that that society has decayed to that point it, it's like know? the school lunch program and i'm not against school lunch program obviously after spending all this time talking about it but when we get this attitude of that really now it's the government's responsibility to, to provide lunch, and now it's the government's responsibility to pro- provide breakfast to the, to the point that the argument becomes that if we don't have school, then what do we do? Yes. It's like, well, we, somehow we have telegraphed to somebody that it's really not their responsibility. That, that really, that really the, the, the education of a child, whether you're talking in textbooks or you're talking about uh, religious classes or whatever really should start in the home and everything else there is to buttress and support the home. Yes. Uh, but when the home uh, falls apart and, and we, we have that somebody else, we delegate it out to make ourselves feel better. Um, and we, well, I don't really know how to do this. I'll let them do it. And we never follow up with it again as, as, as Justin could probably tell you, I, I administrated a school for a little while. I can tell you the parents that were the most effective were not necessarily the most intelligent parents, per se, but they were the parents that cared about their kids' involved. education, and they were, they were simply involved. And they wanted, to, they wanted to read to their kids to the best of their ability or spend time um, in the pursuit of educational things themselves. So, again, that's another podcast, too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Joel acted like he was going to talk a second ago. But, yeah, that's... Uh, Joel's been listening a lot. Yes, he has. But, uh, yeah, that's that's just... Uh, I, I think that's that's the... If there's anything that can be taken from this today, it's that you look at yourself first before you look at anybody else. 
I think the main issue with COVID-19 and all of these different things that have happened over the last couple of years is that, um, number one, people are finally being confronted with things that they don't normally think about. So we have a global pandemic that's happening and people that don't normally think about dying are thinking about dying now. So just because you are just because you've just now started to think about dying, it's important to you that everybody is valuing your life as much as humanly possible. You know what I'm saying? And and the only reason that you care because <laughs> you have all of these things that normally are are dangerous to you, you just don't notice them because you weren't thinking about dying before. Yeah. It's the same That's way good, with good point. It's the same way with all of these different, you know, rights and things like that. Just because you weren't thinking about it five years ago doesn't mean that it wasn't happening five years oh, ago. For instance, we just had a baby and the first time my wife got in the car, she was scared to death of everything. We went we hit a little bump in the road and she oh and she leans into the back. Is he okay? <laughs> Perfect. It's okay. It's okay. It's just this is the first time that you've ever been aware. But that's that a what car value is, dangerous. is. I mean, that's, yeah, that's yes. to a certain extent. So, and maybe that's what we're talking about with patriotism. Bring this kind of back down to that idea. Patriotism is the value of these liberties enough to kind of protect them and protect them not just in the macro, but protect them in the protect them in my life. To say, well, I value education enough to pick up a book or a magazine or a newspaper and read a little bit and, and maybe follow something or, or engage in something that challenges the way that I think. Instead of just entertains me all the time, um, that I'm, I'm actually wanting to learn something so that I can be a better citizen in some form of, you know. Right. And uh, maybe shoot off an email to somebody and say, hey, I think you're doing a good job, or hey, I wish you did a better job about families, or you did a better job about Black Lives Matter, or you did a better job about supporting police officers, or or whatever. You participated in some form or fashion, um, and then, of course, registered and vote, and, and um, have the attitude that we're looking for people that have good qualifications, and um, reminded of what Paul talked about there where, where he says, hey, he said, all things are yours. When he talked to the Corinthians, he said, all things are yours. He said, whether you're talking about me or Apollos or Paul, uh, Peter or the world or death or life, he said, all things are yours and you're Christ and Christ is God's. And he says, that's the way you need to look at us, that we are simply stewards and is required in, um, and stewards that a man be found faithful. Find faithful people. When they cease to be faithful, I don't care if they're part of my party or not, get them out. Get them. I don't want them. If they're not faithful with the finances and they're not faithful with what they swore on, um, get them out. So. I think Brother Wuxeter summed up this entire thing, really, when he used the word value. I think a nationalist would use the word identity, and they would surround themselves in, a, in, in, a, in an identity. Yeah. You know, you know, Paul never mentions he's a Roman until he, he's in this place where he's like, wait a minute, I'm a Roman citizen. I demand these rights. Right. But he always lived out the things that he put a value on, even throughout, throughout the book of Acts. And even Jesus said, you know, where your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be. So what are we valuing in this life? And so if we can look at it not as I'm an American first, but look at it as what do you value? What are the principles that you value? And do you live those out? Right. And then that's going to shape the way that patriotism looks in your life. And so I, I really like how you use that. So I would use the opposite of that value 
would be just someone who has an identity. Well, I'm this party or I'm that party. Well, that's an identity. That's not your value. That's yes. not where your treasure is. That's not anything that's going to change anything. What is your value? That's what that patriotism would mean. No, absolutely. Uh, when it comes to value, playing both sides of the coins here from Brother Walkstetter and from Justin, is that it's it, yeah, it, it can morph into an identity. That's when it's misused, as we talked about at the beginning. But it is also important that those values are held uh, very dearly and taken very seriously and thought of critically. I think in today's day and age, as we talked about earlier, <clears throat> with immediate gratification, um, we look at our view, our value, and say this is right, no matter what. I'm not going to think about it. I don't need anyone else's opinion. I've, I've planted my flag here, and I'm going to die on this hill, that this is, this is right, no matter what. And um, it actually, it reminded me of something C.S. Lewis wrote uh, in the book Mere Christianity, and he's talking about moral law and right and wrong. Uh, and here's a little excerpt from that book there. It says, there is none of our impulses which the moral law may not sometimes tell us to suppress, and none which it may not sometimes tell us to encourage. It is a mistake to think that some of our impulses, say a mother's love or patriotism, are good, and others, like sexual desire or a fighting instinct, are bad. All we really mean by that is that occasions on which a fighting instinct or a sexual desire needs to be restrained is more frequent than those of restraining a mother's love or patriotism. But there are situations in which it is the duty of a spouse to allow sexual impulse and of a soldier to encourage his instinct to fight. But there are also occasions in which a mother's love for her own children or a man's love for his own country have to be suppressed as well, or they will lead to unfairness towards other people's children or other people's countries. And strictly speaking, he says, there's no such thing as a good impulse or a bad, impu a bad impulse. He says, think of a piano. It does not have two kinds of notes on it, right ones and wrong ones. Instead, every single note is right at one time and wrong at another. There is not any one set of instincts that is right, but it's more that it makes some kind of tune that we call goodness or right conduct, and, and we direct our instincts based off those things. And then he says, this is probably the most impactful statement of it all to me. He says, the most dangerous thing you can do, and this, this is where I kind of relate it to the patriotism, the nationalism, um, setting up your value system as absolute. He says, the most dangerous thing you can do is take any one impulse or belief of your own nature and set it up as the thing that you ought to follow at all costs. There is not one of them which will not make us into devils if we set it up as an absolute guide. Then he even says, you might think that love of humanity in general is a safe direction to go, but it's not. If you leave out justice, you will find yourself breaking agreements and faking evidence and trials for the sake of humanity and become, in the end, a cruel and treacherous man. And so I think that he sums it up very well, and he's not even talking about what we're talking about today. He's talking about something completely different, but the point still stands that patriotism, love of country, uh, right, wrong, whatever we set up as individuals as an absolute guide, if you stick to that as an identity, whether it be with an R by your name or a D by your name or whatever 
political group you happen to stand with or religious group you happen to stand with, if you set one of those things up as an, as an absolute, at some point you will find yourself slipping into becoming a cruel and treacherous man if you live by that and that alone and not what is right and living by justice and those types of things. Absolutely. Exactly. One of my favorite short stories written by a Palestinian poet called Kanafani, he says, at the very end, he says, after all, in the final analysis, man is a cause. And at the end of the day, that's where we are. Yeah. We are what we are made of on the inside. We have to value that. That is that patriotism. We're not an identity. We're the cause inside. Man alive. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great story. Return to Haifa. You should a read A Palestinian it. poet. I can't top that. I can't. Nope. So um, it's been kind of weighty today. Um, and I, I know that it's, it is not ever our intention with the podcast to be overly political. We're not trying to preach one side or the other. We're not working on... I mean, I, I think it's kind of obvious that we lean conservative, but that's 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 really the issue with a lot of the things we've been talking about today is the way that our political system is kind of set up. It causes you to be a one or two issue voter, you know, when really it's more nuanced than that. And I, I think we've kind of shown that today. Um, but, you know, if I hope that I hope that this doesn't offend anybody. Um but if it does, let us know. <laughs> you know, you can look at us at uh, Facebook at the Revival Church Podcast. Um, we haven't been doing just a ton of that yet, but we will be. Um, you can email us at Re- Revival Church Podcast at gmail.com. Um, let us know any kind of any kind of feedback, anything that you want to see in future shows and things like that. Um, and just start a conversation uh, in general, you know, that's really the point of, of things like this, not necessarily just our podcast, but podcasts in general, that's, that's really, it's open forum, right? So, um, thank you guys for listening today. Does anybody have anything they want to, they want to add before we go on? Just continue to be a proud patriot. For sure. Amen. For sure. We're blessed. Happy Patriots Day. Um, and, uh, I think, and I'm sorry I'm springing this on you guys, but I think it would be appropriate if, would you like to lead us in prayer, Brother Walksetter, just to kind of. Father God, you are the source of life and liberty. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for a great nation and what we have stood for historically through the years, what we continue to, to stand for in our world today. And I thank you, Lord, for men and women who have served us faithfully, whether they be in their armed forces or those that are first responders, I thank you, Lord, for their service and for their sacrifice. And Father, I pray that you would challenge us to be better than we were yesterday. I pray that you would continue us to live out the, the dreams of our ancestors. I pray that you would help us to reach for the stars in every conceivable way. But most importantly, let us fashion ourselves the way that the great ancestors when they first came to this shore, that they would be most like you, that the kingdom of God would be alive and well somewhere. And Lord, let it begin not just in a nation, but let it begin in the hearts of the citizens ourselves. Let it be given in me, Father. I love you and I praise you and I thank you, Lord, for this day. We remember those that have fallen and we remember those that have sacrificed. Lord, help us uh, to... uh, let, the, let us make sure that these dead have not died in vain. 
We love you and we praise you. And Lord, we continue to understand that this is not the nation, that we continue to look for a city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And we will not be satisfied until we arrive to that holy city itself. We love you and praise you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And until next time, may the Lord bless and keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and give you peace in Jesus' name. See you later.